This is a podcast from ABC Overnights. Here's Michael Pavlich. On ABC Radio, yes, Kate Fulliger is a historian. She's an author as well. She's written a book called Ben Long and Philip, A History Unraveled, and she joins us on the program this morning. Uh, so, look, I've been reading your book, Ben Long and Philip, and it is uh, very interesting because, as you say, in and as I noticed myself as a bit of a student of history, there are very few uh, indigenous, early indigenous figures in this country's history that actually had biographies written about them. It's been a noted point to me often, um, and I've talked about people like Pemelwee and stuff, and the fact that nobody's yeah. really written a definitive biography about him, very important figure to Indigenous Australians and to Australian history in general. Benelong's yeah. another one. I mean, we're all familiar with Benelong's name and sort of have some similar, you know, familiarity with the story, but we probably don't really know the details. So congratulations first on attempting to, to write a biography on a very important Australian historical figure. Did you, fi- did you find it difficult? Uh, I, th- I think this is the problem that I've, when talking to historians about this in the past, is it's very difficult to gather information on some of our Indigenous uh, early figures because there was no written record from their perspective. All we've got really is the colonial uh, version of what went on. So it's a bit hard to get to the bottom of exactly what it was like uh, back in the early days. That's right. No, it is. Um, but I was um, attempting to write the full life of Benelong. There have been um, accounts of Benelong which just take into account the five or six years that he negotiated with the colony. But I actually thought that it was important to try and sketch out his whole life. And as you suggest, the early years before the colonists arrive, and there's no Western written sources, it's harder to grasp that. Although you can kind of retrospectively piece together what his life might have looked like. Um, and I, went, I wanted particularly to track the years that he lived um, after he kind of stepped away from the colony. He lived for about 17 years more um, after that. So I wanted to get a sense of a full 50-year life, which I think really puts that encounter with the colony into some slightly unusual perspective. Yeah, look, and not necessarily a perspective that we normally get. So it's it's good that you've done that in, in many ways. Look, one thing I need to ask you about is that you've approached your telling of history in a very unusual way. Uh, in reverse, almost. So you've started with Benelong and Philip's deaths, and then you've you've sort of worked backwards to their birth. Very unusual approach to take with a history book. Why did you go about it this way? That's right, yes. And it's not necessarily, I didn't want to do it just as a gimmick, and it's not something that I would have done for any other particular history. But for this story, this sort of entwined story, I thought it was the most appropriate for a couple of reasons. One is that... Um, one is that it just uh, it, it matches the kind of argument that I wanted to make about both men, which was basically reverse our common understanding, so sort of upturn them at least. Um, and another kind of more practical thing about it was that it allowed me in the first few chapters to foreground their later lives. And, and in both cases, their lives that are not well known. And once we do know um, these men in their different kind of more unfamiliar contexts, I think it really reshapes the way that we think about their more familiar story. Now, look, we'll just start with Governor Philip, because there are a few misconceptions here. Um, Governor Philip was thought to be a fairly, uh, obviously a very intelligent man, also thought he had a fair few ethical bones in his body, and he treated the Indigenous people quite well. Uh, he certainly had a um, his life uh, folded over and was a big part of Pemulwuy's life as well. They had that all that interaction, which you've covered in the book there. But was he the man that you think Australian history has recorded, Governor Philip? I think that he's most commonly remembered now, and, and again, a bit like Benelong, his name is scattered around the 
Australian landscape, particularly Sydney landscape. Um, I think he's remembered now really as a kind of uh, founding father of a settler nation, Australia. And what I wanted to really show him more precisely as was a man of the British Empire, which doesn't necessarily um, change the way that we see some of, and as you say, he did work very hard to establish some sort of relationship and negotiating relationship with the Aboriginal people as opposed to just ignoring them. Um, but I think it's probably a little bit too far to then sort of ascribe qualities to him that are really much more about the 19th and 20th century aspirations of Australia, which is humanitarianism, even Democrat, I've seen those words used to describe him. Really was he, what he was was a man of the 18th century enlightenment, which, was, which means that he was very rational in his approach to everything. Um, but it doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that he was the kind of proto-liberal that I think a lot of people want him to be. I think he, was, he could be just as um, what we would call from our modern perspective pretty ruthless when it comes to crime and punishment. Um, he, he, and he, and most of all, he wanted to set up a colony in the service of a global empire, not just for its own sake. And, you know, certainly not the idea that he was setting up a colony that would one day become a separate country. Yeah. I mean, he was very much a man of empire in all of his travels around the world. It was empire first. That's it. Yes, exactly. Yes. And so but going back to that part where I said, when I open up with his beginning, we open up to see him back in England in the 1790s when Britain is fighting the French Revolution, remembering that that revolution was basically a revolution for popular democracy. So we kind of see him, the the book opens by seeing him um, in a place that we don't normally recognise him in, which is in Britain, in a conservative Britain, fighting a pretty reactionary counter-revolution to all the qualities that, you know, I think later Australians want to think that, you know, Australia embodies... So that's sort of one, another reason why I like to reverse the order. So it sets the scene for Ben along in a different way than we expect. Yep. Now, also, while we're still on Philip, he was a rather sickly fellow, wasn't he? He had a lot of illness throughout his life and probably didn't help his career much. And probably gave him a little bit of sympathy as well when uh, later in the deal uh, that, um, he, that Ben along got a little bit crook. So uh, he had sympathy there as well, I think. That's right, yes. So he, um, his, his governorship, the five years that he was in New South Wales, was peppered with his kind of complaints about his um, health, I think possibly mostly about his kidneys. Although it is interesting when he gets back home to England, those mostly clear up. So possibly just the stress of being a coloniser was um, a lot for him. But when he, was, when he went back to England in 1793, he took Ben along with him, but also another younger Wongal man called Yamarawani. And uh, both of them suffer a bit of bad health in Britain, but particularly Yamarawani, who eventually actually dies in 1794 in Britain. Um, and so Philip can see the, the kind of the, the, the impacts. And, and also, I mean, yeah. they're both, they, they both suffer from a lack of what we would call modern medicine. So both of them have to kind of put up with their ailments. And unfortunately, Yamarawani doesn't survive. And it would have been horrific, I would have thought, as well, for Benelong to witness that so far from home, you know, not being able to, uh, you know, have any of their, their regular practices that they would normally do for a funeral or for a death. Um, it would have compounded, I would have thought, Benelong's own pain when he was in England. That's right, yes. I think that he doesn't particularly... I don't think he's overly impressed by his trip to Britain, which, of course, shocks most of the colonists when he comes home, that when they're clamouring to ask, you know, what did you think of it? And he was sort of a bit nonplussed. But, <laughs> um, 
but he's uh, but he's particularly uh, the, the, the turning point is really when Yamarawani dies and Benelong just really just says, "I just want to go home now." Yeah. He starts to wait a fair bit before he can get home. It's, it's more than a year before he actually steps foot back in uh, the Sydney Harbour area. But um, but it is interesting that after that date, he hangs out with the new governor John Hunter for on and off for about a year. But after that. Benelong is seen more and more away from the colony and back where with, with his Eora peoples in the area that we now called kind of um, the ride area. Right, okay. Now, also on that trip back from England, um, which, as you say, took a long time because there was, the, there was this conflict going on with France, the uh, revolution in France taking place at the same time, but they, yeah. they stopped in at Rio de Janeiro on the way, and that may have formed his opinion a, a little bit as well, Benelong. That's it. Yes, exactly. I mean, what he would have seen in um, in Brazil was a colony, another colony of another European empire, Portugal. But what he saw there that was a bit different was um, the operations of slavery, um, and it would have accounted for almost fifty percent of the population there. So, I mean, for someone like Benelong, if people hadn't explained it to him, it would have been hard for him to know who actually owns the country. Was it half the population mm. who had dark skin? Was it some of these white people, or was it some of the more, you know, brown people that he identified and could he have seen that these, this is what happens after, at that point for Brazil, 200 years of colonisation. Um, if he had learnt the history of Brazil and it's, it would have been impossible to just read off the faces as someone might have explained it to him, it might have been a pretty terrible portent of what might have, um, what, what, what might be coming down the line yeah, yeah. for for another place sure. Look, if he's observed the treatment of the slaves in the diamond mines, who were treated particularly harshly, you would have thought, well, you know, this isn't a very good advertisement for colonisation. <laughs> I think I might change my mind. Exactly. Um, so you can quite understand that one. Uh, look, we'll head to the phones, one three hundred eight hundred triple two. if you'd like to join this discussion, one three hundred eight hundred triple two. Uh Kiri has called. G'day, Kiri. Good morning, uh, Michael and guests. Look, uh, for a week I've been uh, visiting Sydney, house-sitting for a friend, and I was exploring the Parramatta-Sydney cycleway, and in the middle of Putney, I got lost in a park, and I was looking at a map, and it said Benelong's uh, memorial or funeral or grave. So I went up there, and on the edge of this park, I found an old memorial because, you know, I've already gone around the city and you've got the grand Barangaroo and the grand uh, Benelong Point and the stunning buildings and everyone's there. And on the edge of this park, there's this little memorial and I'm looking at my map and it says, despite the memorial there, he's buried 50 metres away. I mean, what's going on here? And I've followed the map and it took me to a house and uh, I couldn't see anything. And I thought, this is weird anyway. I went home and Googled it, and apparently he's buried on the nature strip outside this house. And the government, five years ago, bought the property for two and a half million bucks, but nothing seems to have been done. Anyway, with that Wikipedia research, I'll, I'll be quick now, I didn't know that Benelong was, was the name of, sorry, Barangaroo is the name of one of his wives. Yeah. And I just thought, how charming that... You know, in the middle of Sydney, you've got his two of the greatest landmarks, uh, you know, uh, Benelong Point and then Barangaroo. The, you know, this is about a week before the, the yes vote. It was, you know, quite, quite uh, for me, powerful. And then in Wikipedia, they said, they described uh, um, 
Benelong as being a guy, he sounded like a fun guy. He liked, uh, in Wikipedia they said he liked to, he liked women and he liked to scrap scrap around with other tribes, which was which was all funny and amusing. Yeah, well, that's, you know? I mean, that's particularly a European perspective, I think, on what went on, Kerry. But, I mean, you brought up some really interesting things then. First of all, uh, as, do we have enough tributes to Benelong in Australia? Should there be more statues? Should there be more recognition of his grave? And where is he buried, Kate? Uh, so he is buried in that Putney um, uh, suburban estate, um, which does seem incredibly kind of uh, modest compared to what we might expect. And particularly, as, as you said, that the Benelong Point Sydney Opera House is, uh, you know, is, is much grander. But the, the grave site was only identified less than a decade ago, um, just through kind of triangulating kind of the sources that we have left over. And some of those scholars persuaded the New South Wales government to buy that plot of land when it came up for sale, as as your caller said, five years ago. But since then, there's just not been full agreement about what to do with it. Um, In my my view and some other people's view, you know, it would be nice if it became a small little museum or a keeping Mm. place. Aboriginal history of of Sydney area. Um, You would need a tourist trade there. And so... Um, you know, no shade on Putney, but I think that's going to have to be uh, something that has to be negotiated about how we can get tourists out to Putney. But um, it would be nice if... if uh, the, the nice thing about thinking about Putney as being a memorial place for Better Long is to remind Sydney-siders uh, that the early history of Sydney is not just Sydney Cove. It is the entire harbour that is involved and deeply affected by the arrival of the fleet. You mentioned before the Eora, which is sort of the default name given to a number of the populations of Indigenous people that lived around uh, Sydney Harbour. Um, but they, it, so Eora, it's, it's sort of an abridged term, isn't it? They're, they're really a lot of uh, different tribes were interconnected and living in that part of the world. That's right. The, the, even using the word Yora um, is was it was a tricky decision to use for my book. I did use it to describe the fifteen or so sort of innermost coastal clans around Sydney Harbour, but really it just does mean the people. So when the fleet came and said, "Who are you? What, you know, what's your name?" They said, "You know, we're the people. You know, who are you? What are you called?" Um, but uh, some people, some Aboriginal people of the Sydney area, would, would not like to use that word. They would prefer to defer to the language, which encompasses more like 30 clans around the area, which is Darug. So it it was a tricky decision that I had to kind of uh, balance between some Aboriginal communities who prefer it and some Aboriginal communities that don't. And while uh, Benelong was away, while he travelled overseas to England, he was gone for a few years, when he came back, he noticeably was aware that things had changed a fair bit in his absence, that uh, the, the colonists had sort of spread out a little bit more, that the Indigenous tribes had become more decimated, and in fact they had to uh, merge a few of the tribes to maintain their existence and their, their customs. That's right. So Benelong is a Wongal man, which is sort of south of the um, harbour, sort of what we might call today sort of Darling Harbour to Parramatta, but on the south side. Um, And that had really already suffered encroachment by the colony. And as I've already said, he also wasn't overly impressed by what he'd seen in Britain. Um, And so when he comes back home, 1795, he's no longer got his sort of straightforward political relationship with Philip. Um, he sees a colony that is sort of on the make. It is becoming 
more, it's taking up more space, but it's also becoming a little bit more ruthless. It's becoming more violent. And he makes a change of mind in, his, in, uh, in, in regard to his politics. And instead of negotiating and thinking that actually mediating with these colonists might be the best way to preserve Eora society, he thinks actually turning inward and protecting what I've got and stepping away from the colonists might be the better route. So he joins a bunch, as you say, a mixed bunch of clans, all people who are now displaced or dispossessed, um, on Wallamadigal land, which is around the kind of Putney area, as I said before. Um, it's actually on the, uh, on the farm of James Squire, the later brewer, brewer that we all know of. Um, and he is often, Ben Long is often said to be, you know, um, befriended by James Squire, and James Squire, James Squire allowed him to live out the rest of his years on his farm. Which actually I do like to point out, it's Benelong who allowed James Squire to remain <laughs> um, settling on, on their land. Um, so I don't know if friendship, again, is really the word that is most operative. But anyway, he does peaceably stay with, with a kind of newish, newly formed clan um, on that land, and that's where he mm. spends his rest of his life. So in, in many ways he was turning away from the colonial influences and towards his traditional upbringing, traditional customs. Um, right. And you've given reasons why that might have happened, which is sort of quite understandable. But how was it interpreted by the Europeans, that turning away? Well, it is important. It is really important. Bit, and this is one of the most important revisions of the book, that for so long, the colonists who lived with Benelong, who saw this sort of rejection, um, really couldn't kind of fathom it as just a simple turning away, a change of political priorities. They saw that his absence from their colony uh, was just meant loss, you know, and it must have been Benelong's loss. Uh, whereas they couldn't sort of see that the absence there just meant that he had a presence elsewhere, right? He, that he had just um, walked away. And that, so when they felt rejected, they kind of started to spin a historical story that Benelong was the one who mm. was rejected who was rejected. And I think too often historians have seen those, um, have read those sources and agreed that it, it must have been a case of loss, that he was, uh, he couldn't fit in with the colonists, but then he also must have not been able to fit in back with his own people. And he was, you know, and then this trope of falling between two worlds and never fitting in anymore attaches to him. But when you really dig down in what we do have of the sources of that early 19th century period, which are not too much, I have to say, but they are, they do exist. Really, what it shows is a man who's re-ensconced in uh, ritual battles. He, there, are, there are messages um, of, of his esteem by people recognising that he's a leader of his people. Um, and then when he dies, there's a huge tribute battle waged in his honour. And we know that there are Aboriginal people who constantly go to his gravesite after his death to pay tribute. So this really was a man who was re-embraced, not someone who fell between two worlds. And you'd have to say he gave it a fair go too, because he obviously travelled to England, which was a fairly big effort, you would have thought. But not only that, he learned the language. In fact, he was quite proficient in at reading and writing in English. He was, yes. He must have been reasonably good at English even before he left for England, because he'd been talking with Philip on and off for like three or four years but by this stage, certainly about three years, and really trying to um, help Philip diffuse any potential uh, outbursts of violence was his main role, um, but also to gather information about the English and try and figure out who these newcomers were. But then when he goes to England, Philip also arranges for a tutor, so he, um, he gets even better at that language. So I, I like the idea that, uh, that, you know, this is a man who 
makes these decisions to walk away from the colony, who actually knows them probably better than anybody, yeah. any other person, you know. And so those two things can't be divorced. Uh, someone was, su- uh, was suggesting in your book that his writing was even of a better quality than many of the uneducated English people. Um, Yeah, but well, the the one thing that we do have, a source that we do have is a letter. Um, It's in the National Library here in Canberra. But that was not actually his writing. But we know that he dictated it, like Philip would have dictated it, to uh, scribe. That's how most 18th century um, letters are written in in official capacity. And so it's not Benelong's own writing, but we do think that it is, you know, his straight out words um, dictated to Philip. And so, yeah, we can see that he's got a good sense of sentence structure and and conveying what he means. So that's pretty remarkable for um, an adult in his 20s to have learned a whole new language. Now, Governor Philip uh, obviously went back to England. He had his time in uh, in um, Australia, New South Wales, as the governor. Did he, when he went back to England, did he show much interest in the future of the colony and the way things were progressing, or did he sort of more or less that was his time served here and he went on t- to uh, live his life and think about other naval pursuits and other English uh, problems? Well, he certainly is particularly interested in, in, in those naval pursuits and he sort of spends most of his time talking to the Navy about um, being reinstated back into the Navy because he wants to help the, the now-going um, war effort against the French Revolution, which he does eventually get to do. But there are a few letters where, because he's still quite in contact with particularly um, Gidley King, one of the, third, one of the later governors, um, and Hunter himself and just a few others. So he keeps correspondence with that, with, the, with those people. He also talks to Joseph Banks in London about progress. You can see in the tone of his letters that he is generally disappointed when he hears rumours about what's going on, particularly the spread of alcohol, the spread yeah. of disorder. Well, the rum rebellion was only just around the corner, wasn't it? So, it, yeah. So yeah. He, 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 the tone of his letters is often a bit disappointed, um, but. I think that's actually less than you might expect. And I think that he is another person who, for different reasons, is starting to walk away from the colony. And for Philip's reasons, it's that the colony was never supposed to be the pinnacle of his career. It, for him, it was just another um, venture in his career, which, and, which was mostly kind of grounded by his abiding passion for a global British empire. Yeah. So whether he was in... Uh, you know, being seconded to the Portuguese uh, Navy to help, who was an ally of Britain at the time, or whether he was helping uh, to fight the French Revolution, or whether he had been early involved in the American Revolution. Every instance of his naval service was really an aid of a larger purpose rather than just thinking about, you know, one particular colony. He was very much focused on his career, as, as is evident. Well, you should talk a little bit about his private life and also contrast that with Benelong. Were both, uh, both men married? I believe uh, Benelong was married a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, they both have interesting and, I guess, in modernised, unconventional relationships. Benelong had at least four wives. The Eora men of the 18th century had, could often have two wives at a time. And uh, we know that Benelong's first wife, who doesn't have a name recorded in the sources, died of the smallpox epidemic that ripped through in 1789. His second wife was famously Barangaroo, and that was quite a famously kind of dramatic um, relationship. While he's married to Barangaroo, he's also married to a Guiaga woman called Kurabarabula. So that's an instance where he's got two wives at the same time. It's quite clear that Barangaroo, though, is his primary wife with whom he has a child. Um, and Kurabarabula is sort of a secondary wife who's not going to have a child with. So we can think of marriage more of a political arrangement in that sense. Um, 
in the end, Farangaroo dies and Kuribarabula leaves him. And we know that his fourth and final wife is a, is a girl called Burong. And we also know that Burong is in that grave in Putney today with him. So okay. he died last life. Uh, what about uh, Philip? He was married. Did they have any kids? No, Philip doesn't have any issue. Um, and in many ways, he's got much more unusual relationships. He was married before um, he came to um, Sydney Cove. Uh, when he was a young man, he married a much older woman. And that marriage intrigued me because not only did the older woman bring money to the marriage where Philip didn't, she kind of insisted on what we might now call a prenup. They also <laughs> really? had a yeah, and so they also, much more, even more unusually, had a legal separation, not quite the same as a divorce, but close to it, in which, in which she manages to get back all her money. Um, and then where I discovered, even more unusually, throughout that entire marriage, she'd been living with her companion, Anna. And then when I started being intrigued by this woman called Anna, then I realized that uh, Philip's first wife, who was called Charlotte, had also lived with Anna through her previous marriage. And then the two of them are, do- uh, are buried together um, in a grave in Wales with the one tombstone that says, here lies Charlotte Philip with her companion Anna. So it really made me think, I think Philip got himself into quite an unusual situation when he was a young man, which um, unfortunately in the book I couldn't go into too much, although I did think that I would like to write a whole other book about those women. But um it, 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 what, it, what, it, what it did for me in the book was allow me to kind of show that Philip uh, was uh, probably not very comfortable in the company of women altogether. That, that kind of, I couldn't suggest anything further about his own private life, but it, did, it, it was a good way of underscoring the fact that this is a man who lives in a deeply homosocial world. Uh, it's a naval um, male world, and it does help explain a little bit about how he also coped with the gender relations in the colony when he was a governor. After, he, after his governorship, he marries a second time, which does seem a little bit more of a conventional relationship, although some letters um, that we've discovered from that marriage afterwards also suggest it wasn't an overly happy one. Yeah, and uh, living in Bath, he was living in the you know very prestigious place in England and uh, had, had, had a bit of money, and yeah, it, uh, but didn't end that happily. And he really didn't uh, go on to live that much longer after he served in New South Wales, did he? That's right. Well, no, he, he serves in the French Revolution in yeah. various different capacities for nearly 10 years, actually. Oh, it was 10 not... years, okay. So it was yeah, quite a bit then, of time. Yeah, and then soon afterwards he kind of um, spends the last couple of years in Bath and dies in 1814. Mm. And then uh, a couple of years later, Benelong passes away as well. That's it, yeah. So they die at similar times. Um, and, uh, and so we know that Philip is buried in a little kind of church just outside Bath, and Benelong is there with his last wife, Burong, also with another um, Aboriginal man called Nambury. So the three of them, three, three people who had probably the most to do with the colony, are now kind of bound together in this one grave in that right area today. Now, why do you think Benelong is such an important figure, and Governor Philip, I suppose, but Benelong in particular, why, are they, why is he such an important figure to Australian history? And do you think we need to address the fact that there are these sort of myths around that um, don't really pay the correct tribute to his life? That's right. I think that Benelong has been remembered, the, the, his name at least has been remembered, because 
of those few years when he decided to be a negotiator with Philip. And very often that story has kind of morphed into then describing Philip and Ben along as friends and kind of, and they're trying to strip the politics away from that. But really I wanted to reinstate the politics of their relationship, which they were strictly really diplomatic kind of um, people to, to one another, counterparts to one another for a few years. Um, and with that, with that kind of story of only concentrating on the few years where he's a negotiator, Ben Long is often seen, I think, in later days to be some kind of symbol of Aboriginal possibilities or futures under, under colonialism. Or, or even a symbol for the other side of that as well, for the failures, perhaps, uh, that, uh, we, well, right. you know, that we blame the Indigenous people for. Look, I've got a text here from Greg. It says, that the story of Ben Long is fascinating. It was featured heavily in approximately 2016 in the ABC series The First Australians. Uh, an yes. ultimate warrior of his tribe, initially captured by Philip in order for the governor to study and understand him. Eventually strong friends and ate at their table, fluent in English, adored by British women and fated by the elites, came home and Australia was changed. His tribe saw him as irrelevant and he became a desolate drunk, hitting the rum and sat in Sydney streets, a lonely man, says Greg. Now, that's all correct up until that last sentence and this is the stuff that you're trying to readdress that he wasn't a, he wasn't a drunk at all and he he was very popular with his uh, locals with the, with his yep. kin and his uh, clans and yep. was anything but irrelevant that's right exactly and again you know that word friends pops up and so and and i think it's done a lot of kind of work of smothering the, polit- the political motivations that he had and both men had to just call them friends and certainly there is not when you really push the evidence to see was he just a hopeless, lost, drunk afterwards, when you really push the evidence on that, it's not strong. It's much, much stronger is to see this is a man who's re-engaging with clans all around Sydney Harbour and particularly with his kind of newly formed clan over in, uh, over in the West. So uh, that's, that's really one of the main points of the book to kind of really face head on that, that idea. And just to carry on to your earlier question about what is it, Ben Long mean in Australian society or Australian history now. For so long, he's been seen as an emblem of either, you know, a loss, as you say, that he's blamed for or a loss that um, people on the left would prefer to blame colonisation for. But really, in Ben Long's own mind, he had already kind of exacted his personal vengeance on Philip so that, uh, for his original kidnapping by kind of organising some payback to Philip. Yep. He thought that the slate was wiped clean. He thought that they had an equal diplomatic relationship and he walked away from the colony on his own terms. So if Ben Long is going to symbolise anything about Aboriginal futures, I prefer to think of him opening up those vistas to, th- to see Aboriginal agency on its own terms, not just defined by colonialism. And also the welcoming. I mean, he was very welcoming. He opened his arms and tried to say, "Okay, well, what, what do we want to talk about?" How, you know, and uh, made an That's effort. It. Made an effort to bridge that gap. And uh, you know, That's it. it. I mean, nothing has been more reson- resonant to me than thinking about Ben Long in the last few days with the failure of the referendum. The, the, the referendum was exactly the same kind of gesture that. Um, that Ben Long yep. was offering. It was an invitation and a kind offering. Yep. And in Those, the end, when that rejected, you can't be surprised when Aboriginal people want to think again about their political strategies. Those echoes uh, resonated with me, I must say, Kate, as well. So, look, uh, appreciate it very much. Thank you for your time this morning. And, uh, yeah, it's a very interesting book. Kate Fulliger there is the author of a book called Ben Along and Philip, uh, A History Unraveled. And it's a very interesting read and great to be able to readdress some of those uh, myths in Australian history. Mm-hmm.